Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So how can we relate to a story like this? Sinead has certainly helped us to, to do that in, uh, in a very approachable way. Nonetheless, the central character here is a man who wanders around a graveyard uh, possessed by demons, howling like a wolf, inflicting injury on himself and breaking chains and shackles. Sounds like a monster movie, but it isn't. This is a story about disorder and uncleanliness. It is also about, it's also a story about order restored and someone being made clean again. This story invites us to consider the disenfranchised members of our society for whom Christ died, often left to wander in the graveyard of our culture. It also has more to do with you and me than one might think. So I imagine us to think along both of those lines as we get into this text. We must begin, though, with what this story originally meant to its listeners. This story goes to great lengths, more than any other story probably, to show us how unclean and therefore God-forsaken the man in the graveyard is. To the original listeners of this story, being unclean was a big problem, and that has nothing to do with not taking a bath. Scholars uh, of anthropology and religion will tell us that the oldest symbol of evil that is available to us, when you go back in history, is the symbol of being unclean, specifically bearing a stain of some kind. In Jewish culture, one had to be clean in religious and moral practice to be acceptable to God and community. This was referred to as a ritual purity. When one became ritually unclean through moral or religious transgressions, and of course there were many, or through illness, or even being victimized by others, then one's humanity, one's identity was soiled. A stain was not easily removed, alienating them from God and community, resulting in great shame and loneliness. In this story, the central character is absolutely buried in uncleanliness. Look at the levels of ritual impurity here. The story takes place in a Gentile land considered unclean. The Gentile man is possessed by demons who are well known to be very unclean. He is living in a graveyard which renders him unclean, unclean by his association with the dead. And we're just getting started. The impurity establishes that this man is profoundly isolated from God and from his community a community that clearly and understandably has banished this man to loneliness in the graveyard out of disgust and fear. I would imagine, I'd be afraid if I lived in that town. How about you? This is also a story about chaos and disorder. In addition to a stain 
One of the other oldest symbols of sin and evil is chaos. Since antiquity, the sea has been a symbol of evil because it was viewed as capable of great chaos. Just think of a storm at sea. Such a storm destroys all kinds of things people have built and plans too. It is no accident that the demons in our story today end up in the sea where they belong. Like a ship tossed out, tossed about at a storm and sea. The man in our story today is possessed by thousands of demons, pulling the man every which way, leaving him to wander aimlessly in the graveyard with no purpose, howling at the moon. Again, there's no purpose to this man's life, only randomness, chaos, and the shame of having no purpose or value in this world. So the man possessed by legion today is a, just a pathetic, horrible example, or a really good example, of both symbols of evil, chaos and uncleanliness. In a very poignant image of self-loathing, the man bruises himself with stones. We might be tempted to think this man is like a wild animal, but a wild animal typically doesn't do that sort of thing. Only a person who's living with deep shame, the shame of being profoundly unclean. So this glimpse of a broken humanity is kind of heartbreaking, and it is why the man in the graveyard is not really a monster at all, but a lost person for whom Jesus came, lived, and died, and restored, as Sinead pointed out. God, through Jesus, enters into the many layers of unclean to make this man clean. He drives out the chaos and reestablishes order and purpose in this, in this man's life by sending the demons into the pigs. This does not seem fair to the pigs or the owners of the pigs who are driven by sudden madness over the cliff, literally into the sea to drown. But again, to the mind of an ancient Palestinian, legion belonged in the sea how they understood things. Now, we don't know what led this man, what led to this man ending up in such dire circumstances. But when he meets Jesus, we learn that this man's core relationships are restored, namely with God and community. And the restored man has purpose again, Namely, what? Did you get that from the story? Tell others what Jesus has done for you. In other words, there's reason to hope. There's a healing force and person out there. And isn't that a relevant purpose always for us? Because sometimes this world is kind of a hopeless place and needs hope. Anyway, what are we to make of this story. Let's shift gears. What does this sad, thrashing wolf man have to do with our lives? As it turns out, quite a bit, I think. People who are stained and unclean are plenty in our world. And Jesus has something to say about that. First, I want to challenge you to consider how our society creates individuals 
like the one we see in this story. Recently, I've been reading a book that's been out for a few years now entitled The New Jim Crow. Anybody read that book? I'd like to highlight at this time, partly because Martin Luther King Day was just a few days ago, but mostly because this book is all about a large population deemed unclean in so many ways in our culture and resigned to the graveyard of our society. This is an incredibly compelling and persuasive read. The basic thesis is this. The nationwide war on drugs in America, going all the way back to the 1980s and continuing into the present day, has produced a devastating mass incarceration of African Americans and to a lesser extent the Latino population. White people have been mostly unaffected by the aforementioned war on drugs. Now, one might say, well, crime is more prevalent in certain ethnic and socioeconomic groups, after all. Uh, no, <laughs> it's actually not true. Statistics are clear. Here's the catch. Statistics show that the selling and using of illegal drugs on a per capita basis is relatively equal among all ethnic groups and socioeconomic classes. And yet our prisons, uh, the majority in our prisons are of African-American descent. In the war on drugs, black communities have been systematically targeted for a whole host of reasons. We call this in Christian thinking institutional sin that's way bigger than the will of any individual, but it's sin that's embedded right there in society. Black communities systematically targeted for a whole host of reasons, can't go into it now, while much larger numbers of offenders in white communities are largely ignored. The result is that as a nation we have far and away, it's not even close, the highest incarceration rate in the world, largely for nonviolent crimes committed by a certain race of people. And this mass incarceration of African Americans has destroyed or severely damaged many of their communities and kept large numbers of black people in a separate world from that of white America, denying them the fruits and benefits of society, much like the Jim Crow era did hundreds of years ago. Okay, I told you this would be challenging, but it's important. Here's the unclean part. Once a black person has been convicted of possession of an illegal drug, the system conspires to make sure that person is stained for life. So first they must serve time, and a majority, in a majority of cases it is for a nonviolent crime of possession of a drug or selling. Other countries, by the way, don't generally incarcerate for nonviolent crimes. And when they do for something like marijuana, it's no more than maybe a one-year sentence. In America, it has been, uh, as it has been frequently noted, a young black man on a first-time arrest might see 10 years in prison. Eventually, they get, get out of prison, they must look for a job, but they must do so with the permanent stain of 
felon. Well, what happens then? Very few employers will hire a felon. Nor can a felon vote or serve on a jury. So how does a young black male who made a mistake make something of his life when he can't get a job and is seemingly banned from participation in society? He's been stained for life, stained as a criminal. And this often becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of dwindling options that destroys lives and communities. You wonder where the violence comes from? Indeed, some communities become far too much like graveyards. Now, there's complicity all over the place here. And certainly, it's not to let anyone off the hook, least of all members of that community. There's something bigger going on. Jesus is all about making people clean again so they can join the workforce and raise families. God calls us to join him in that work of racial justice, of faith active in love. What does that look like for we who partner with God in the world to give life to our neighbor? To see the humanity that is in those individuals and to coax that forward by the power, the healing power of Christ. How about our neighbors across the river in North Minneapolis? Eventually, this means working to dismantle the institutionalized bias that targets certain people but not others. Important work. But in the meantime, there are other things that can happen. My previous congregation, uh, we experienced uh, a grassroots movement of people who linked with Parenting with Purpose, a program in the inner city that links uh, people in sometimes white suburban congregations with families where a parent is in prison, usually the dad. And they will drive that family to the prison to visit the parent, pray with them, spend time with them. We are now, as a congregation, just about ready to join in a process called Partnership for Missional Church. And with that partnership, there will be other churches participating with us, including uh, some African-American churches and at least one from across the river. There's an opportunity for relationship building and justice making. Who are others in our midst who suffer from being unclean? This is a text that invites you to bring something to it. Who do you identify? Who do you see as you reflect on this? Are you sufficiently challenged? (laughs) Okay, I want to finish uh, by just personalizing this a little bit uh, more just to look at another way of of looking at this whole unclean business and look at very subtle ways that we wrestle with being unclean. I've worked uh, over the years with parents who want their kids to have faith. But if the suggestion is made that they pray with their kids or open up their Bibles with them, there is often hesitation. Why do you think that is so? Well, I don't know how to pray well enough. I can't do that. I can't pray in front of my kids. Or, I, I don't know the Bible well enough. What if my son asks me a question and I don't know the answer? 
God forbid. Or maybe, I'm not a good enough Christian to offer anything to anyone. It's better if I keep my mouth shut. The stain of not being good enough or knowledgeable enough of a Christian. What is unspoken here is clear. Either I'm not close to God or God's not close to me. I'm just an average schmo. It should encourage you to know that God has come near to you and has no plans to leave your side in whatever, in the midst of whatever uncleanliness you live. God's love for you is not based on your skill or knowledge or the mistakes you've made, but on how much you matter to God. Faith is simply believing in that God, the one who shows up in the most humble dimensions of your existence and walks with you. In a similar way, people often feel their daily life and work have nothing to do with God. Those places are far too ungodly, we might think. Yet God declares your daily life and work to be sacred ground. God is at work there with you, nurturing life around you and in you, creating a more trustworthy world with and through you. This means we all have callings on Monday and Tuesday. And so our lives are not a secular graveyard of mundane and meaningless matters. We are all participants in the life of God. Amen. Amen.